Most trombones use a slide to change pitch, but there is a type of trombone that uses valves like a trumpet. It's called a valve trombone. Valve trombones are cool and kind of odd looking, like a faster trombone with a teeny tiny slide or a trumpet with a really big nose. Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music played by slide trombones, music played by valve trombones, and sometimes music that sadly has no trombones at all. Strong Songs is a listener-supported show. I make this show all by myself with no sponsors, no network or advertisers, and that lets me make exactly the show I want to make with no compromises. If you'd like to join the Patreon club and help me make Strong Songs, go to patreon.com slash strong songs to find out more. On this episode, we're digging into the Strong Songs mailbag, and I've got a whole bunch of your musical questions to try to answer. We've got topics from the nitty-gritty to the practical to the philosophical and everything in between, plus a little bit of Strong Songs behind the scenes, so let's grab our letter opener, put on some reading glasses, and do this thing. music is like dancing about architecture so goes the famous quote often attributed to kind of a lot of different people and in the service of a lot of different points about writing and about music the fact remains that it is definitely hard to write about music since music often defies easy linguistic description so i appreciate all of you who write in to ask me your musical questions for strong songs q a episodes because it's not actually very easy to even explain what it is that you're asking about in an email timestamps and youtube links help but i really enjoy reading as listeners take on that challenge of using language to describe music, an art form that often defies language altogether. Just as a reminder, before we get started, you can always write me at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. You can ask questions for future Q&A episodes or just send me music recommendations, whatever. Patrons, of course, can also message me through Patreon. I always check those messages. So if you'd like to ask me something, that's another way you can do it. I do try to keep track of the questions that I get through social media, like Twitter and Instagram, though that is harder to keep track of. So email is probably the best way. Anyway, listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Feel free to reach out. All right, let's get to it. Tawny writes, when Moonhooch put traffic cones in their saxophones, does it alter the sound in any meaningful way, or is it more of a gimmick? Also, I figured you could use an excuse to mention Moonhooch, because they rule. Uh, Moonhooch does rule. It's a really cool two-sax, one-drummer trio, uh, kind of from that busking tradition in New York City, similar to that band Too Many Zoos that I'm sure many of you have seen on YouTube or on social media. Moonhooch is really cool. They got a lot of stuff online. They do put traffic cones, like huge traffic cones, in their saxophones sometimes. Let's listen to an example, and then I'll kind of talk about what that does to the saxophone sound. So on the left, you're hearing Wenzel McGowan playing tenor sax with a huge traffic cone stuck in the bell, and that's what it sounds like. On the right, Mike Wilbur, the other saxophone player, is also playing tenor saxophone, but he doesn't have anything in his bell. That's kind of moon hooch in a nutshell, that example. 
So to answer your question, Tawny, putting a traffic cone or anything else in the bell of a saxophone does make a difference, but it doesn't make a huge difference and certainly not as much as like putting a mute over a trumpet or a trombone or a brass instrument. The reason for that is that a saxophone lets out air in a bunch of places compared with brass instruments like a trumpet or a trombone. On those instruments, you know, the air just goes out through the bell at the very end. Everything, the tone, the air, it all comes out there. On a saxophone, the air is escaping through a bunch of holes all down the side of the instrument. If you can picture one, there's all these little holes and like the keys raise and lower the uh, pads which cover the tone holes. So the air starts escaping like at the octave key in the neck at the very beginning and then it escapes all down the palm keys and the, the other keys that you play all the way down to the bottom. So putting something in the bell doesn't make a huge difference, especially when you're playing higher on the instrument because, you know, the whole instrument is pretty open and the air is escaping through a bunch of different holes much higher than the bell. Where it does start to make a difference if there's something in the bell is on the lower notes when most of the top keys are held down so the air is moving all the way down the horn and it's only escaping through the bottom, the bell starts to matter more and more and more the more keys you have pressed down. McGowan is playing a low C, this song is in C, that's his low D, which is pretty low. He could go a major third lower to a low B flat, that'd be his lowest note, and that would sound really different with this huge cone that he's got stuck in his bell. But even on a low D, it just sounds kind of like bonkier and heavier, so it does affect his sound when he's playing the bass part, and I think that that's kind of why he's got the cone in his bell, because he's playing the bass part, and Wilbur is playing much higher. He doesn't have anything in his bell because he doesn't need to because it wouldn't really make a difference. He's playing way up high on the saxophone, so his sound is all just kind of coming out of a much higher part of the actual instrument. So putting something in the bell of a saxophone does make a difference, but not a huge difference, and the primary difference that it makes is if you're playing more of a bass part down low on the horn, like is happening on this recording. It's also just really cool looking, and that's not just a gimmick, like you could describe it as a gimmick, but it's more than that. It's showmanship. It makes things exciting. It's fun to watch someone physically altering their instrument in this kind of showy, flashy, and weird way. It draws listeners in, and I think that's actually kind of important, and it's part of their energy. You know, it's even that busking energy, because it's a traffic cone. It's something you'd find on the street. So it's of a piece with their overall vibe, and I think that that matters in a way that's more than just the word gimmick. You know, I, I wouldn't describe it as a gimmick. It's a really cool part of their show. These guys rule. This is a really cool group. I love that this kind of busking group is getting popular. Like, it's a thing that social media has made possible in a certain way, and I think that's really neat. So yeah, check out Moon Hooch. They're great. And um, if you play saxophone, you should definitely experiment, at the very least, with putting things in your bell, because it can be pretty cool, and it can make your horn sound different. Rihanna writes, is Strangers by the Kinks in 7-8 time? Well, let's listen to the song and see what we hear. So Rihanna, to answer your question, no, this song is not in 7-8. It's in 5-4, or at least that's how I'd count it, like this. One, two, three, four. You could also count it as a bar of three and a bar of two if you want to think of it that way. Like this. One, two, three, one, two. One, two, three, one, two. We are not two, we are one. It's a 
great song. It's a great band. The Kinks totally rule. And yeah, it's in 5-4. There are some pretty cool songs in 5, though it's not the most common time signature. But yeah, just 3 and 2 is the way to count it. 5-4. All right, so we've actually got a few more questions about counting. So I'm going to kind of arrange them in order of complicatedness. That was the simplest one. And now we're going to get a little bit more complicated. Here's William. William writes, I would love it if you could go through the counting on the first section of Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. I've read that it's meant to be in 15-8 and then 4-4, but I can't get my head around it. All right, I've actually been asked about this song a few different times over the years, so let's let's get to it. This is Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield, and uh, it does have some odd counting, so let's listen. So this recording is from 1973. This is a really cool piece, and it is indeed in 15, and that sounds complicated, but that's not really how I'd count it if I were playing it live. I would actually just count it as a bar of 7, and then a bar of 8. And if you can get your head around that, you can actually follow this whole song. So let's count it. Here we go. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. So it's tricky here, you have to ignore the piano because it's playing over the bar line. Just keep counting seven and eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So that's the gist of the part that's in 15 or 7 plus 8. In the back third of the song, it pivots to just being in 4. It's a little bit tricky about it. It kind of like flips the 7 and the 8 at one point, I think. But once it lands, it's steadily in 4 for the rest of the recording. So we're in 4 here. Just 1, 2, 3, 4. 1, 2, 3, 4. The tempo's shifted. We're still in four, though. One, two, three, four. So obviously the first part of the song is trickier, but it's a good exercise for ear training. You have to focus on that light figure and not get distracted by the piano when the piano chords come in because the piano is playing a figure that stretches over the bar line and it'll kind of disorient you if you allow yourself to get focused on the piano instead of just the booby booby boo booby kind of part. So instead, just focus on that and counting seven, then eight, seven, then eight. Practice doing it. Trust that you've got it even when you, you tries to trip you up. And soon you'll just be able to hear the whole thing and you won't have to try so hard. So the whole song will just kind of slot into place in your brain. It's a really cool tune. Let's keep these odd time signature questions going. The next question comes from Nathan, who writes, I've been trying to wrap my head around the time signature used in this Pearl Jam B-side in the moonlight from Lost Dogs. I can't seem to come to terms with what it is. I saw someone online guess at 6-4 time, but when I try to count it, I just get lost after about 8 seconds. All right, well, let's listen to In the Moonlight by Pearl Jam and see what we hear. Can 
All right, so this is a fun one because it's clever. It's tricking the listener into thinking it's more complicated than it is, mostly through how they're using syncopation. But the person who guessed that it's in 6-4, those they're not far off. It starts in 6-4. It has six beats per bar. Each phrase of this verse has three bars of 6-4, then a bar of 4-4, and then a bar of 5-4. That's the full counting for the phrase. Let me just show you. I'm going to count along now, starting on the second phrase. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five, six. So I mentioned it sounds trickier than it is because of how they use syncopation. Syncopation basically just means a lot of upbeats and also kind of uh, disorienting the listener a little bit, making you think that upbeats are downbeats. And they're using syncopation here because the first hit of this groove, of this riff they're playing, is on an upbeat. And it's really easy to hear that as a downbeat, which just makes everything kind of get turned around. But once you can get your head around that pulse and where the downbeat is, it gets a lot easier to hear it. So I'm just going to play the riff, kind of that main riff, which is in 6-4. I'm going to play it on piano and just count along and really just focus on that upbeat. It starts on the upbeat, but then once you can hear where the downbeat is, it's actually, it's pretty grooving and easy to hear. Here we go. A two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. So once you get that basic groove, the bars of six are a lot easier to hear. That just leaves the second part of the phrase where there's the bar of four and then the bar of five. The bar of five has this whole syncopated guitar riff. There's a drum figure. It sounds super complicated, even though the quarter note is right there. The pulse never shifts. And once you can count it, you can actually just feel those steady quarter notes, even though the band kind of flies up in the air, the quarter note stays solid. Nathan, this is definitely the part where you're getting lost because you can start out counting in six and be fine. And then they get here and it's like, whoa, what's happening? Your brain will want to attach to some of those faster figures. Once you can get to where you're just counting four and then five steady quarter notes, it never shifts. I think you'll find it and you'll be able to hear it. So I'm going to count it in again. I'm going to start in the third bar of six, followed by the bar of four and then the bar of five. So it's going to be six, then four, then five. Here we go. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five, one. So they change it up a few times from there, it goes into a steady four on the chorus, but the whole song is just combinations of that six four groove and then occasional bars of four and five to keep listeners off balance. So once you can feel that steady pulse that the quarter note just stays steady, you'll be able to kind of piece the whole thing together. You might have to listen to that section a few times that I just recorded to get it, but I think that you will get it if you just listen because it's actually a lot simpler than it seems if you get too caught up in all the eighth notes. Just focus on the quarter note and you will keep your balance as a listener. Are 
we've got a couple more counting questions here. They're both tricky in their own way. So first, from Nick. Nick writes, What in God's name is happening at the beginning of Good Time Boys by the Red Hot Chili Peppers? The tune settles into 4-4 as soon as the groove hits, but the intro, where Flea's bass keeps a steady pulse but seems out of sync with the guitar tracks, it has this loose, chaotic, pulling-apart vibe that I can't make heads or tails of. Alright, well, let's listen. This is the very beginning of Good Time Boys by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's good. That's a good intro. That's the first track on Mother's Milk, their 1989 album. That's a pretty cool way to kick off an album. So yeah, this is indeed disorienting. It's all Flea's doing. Flea, the bassist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, really creative guy, very, very good bass player. He's superimposing three over the song's 4-4 groove, while over on the left, John Frusciante, also a great guitar player, he's playing a steady 4-4 guitar riff, but the bass really sticks out because it's right in the middle, and it's super punchy, and he's like hitting the strings super hard. And because the tune hasn't established a groove yet, it totally throws you off balance because you don't actually know which of the two of them is right. They're kind of both saying something in the same tempo, but Flea is so much more aggressive, and he's actually the one who isn't playing the 4-4 riff, so it kind of just throws you off balance. So the key here is kind of twofold. First, you have to ground yourself in Frusciante's guitar riff, since that's the one that's sort of central to the real pulse of the song. So let's start there. He's over on the left. He's playing this pretty standard funky guitar riff here in E. He just jumps up to the dominant seventh, walks it down. Kind of the riff, the sort of riff that you've heard a lot of different places. I'm playing it under here, and I'm going to play it along with him now on the piano. So listen for that over on the left. So then there's Flea, he's up in your face and he's doing a cross rhythm, superimposing three over the song's 4-4 time. He's playing this really aggressive figure and he's purposefully trying to confuse your ear. He's much more audible than the guitar over on the left, and so it just makes you focus on him, even though what he's playing is a lot more confusing than what Frashanti is playing. There's also just this screeching guitar note that's also in the center right there with Flea, and that's not contributing any rhythmic information, but it's adding to the sense of chaos. Okay, so superimposing three over four. So if the tempo is here, and I'm going to try to explain this whole thing by just leaving this tempo going. If the tempo is here, Flea is basing his figure on 16th notes, which sound like digga 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 four per beat. So what he's doing is he's making a figure out of groupings of three 16th notes. So one two three 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 one two three. What he's doing is he's playing two sixteenth notes and then skipping one, leaving a rest, and then he's playing two more. So it's like a grouping of three where he's playing two sixteenth notes and then leaving one rest. What you get is Then he's also kind of swinging it and laying back, so it's more like like he's pulling at the time. Whew, okay, I did that all in one take. I could have edited it, but I just want you all to know for posterity that I didn't. It's kind of hard to do that, to talk with the time going. I guess you get better at it the more music teaching you do. Anyways, that's the thing to listen for with him is 
You want to hear the rest like it's a beat, like it's a played note. Da 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 da. It's still there. Da 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 da. So you have to kind of hear the rest like it's a note. And once you hear that, you'll actually start to hear pretty quickly what he's doing. Da 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 da. The thing is, it takes them a minute to settle into it. Like they're, he's kind of going a little faster and then he slows down. So it's a pretty stretchy beginning and it's really loose. That's super cool. It's very organic. They're not playing it uber locked in. You just have to kind of know what they're doing beforehand so you can feel how they kind of stretch it and then settle together in time for the whole band to come together on the downbeat. Incidentally, this is at least worth mentioning, even though it's kind of a deep cut. What Flea is doing is kind of similar to what Bernard Purdy does on the hi-hat when he plays his signature Purdy Shuffle, which I talked about on the episode about Steely Dan's Babylon Sisters. It's like the alang that he's isolating there. It's the same kind of idea as what Flea is doing. So Flea is a really rhythmically hip, he's a really creative bassist, and he's definitely reading from the same playbook as a lot of funk drummers who came before him. So let's listen one more time and I'm just gonna count along with it. I'm gonna stretch my counting a little bit since they stretch the time a little bit, but we'll kind of get the pulse established so you can feel where it is. So then you're gonna have to listen to this a bunch of times to get used to it, but this will give you a kind of starting point so you can feel that pulse as they set up the downbeat. Here we go. And one. Our final time signature and counting related question is a tricky one. The question comes from Ben who writes, would you be able to pull apart the time signatures and changes to the orchestral intro of One Night in Bangkok by Murray Head from the musical Chess? Every time I try to count it, I lose it. I'm keen to hear your thoughts on this. All right, well, let's listen to it first. This is One Night in Bangkok from the musical Chess uh, from the 1980s. The actual song is performed by Murray Head, though the musical was written by ABBA maestros Benny Anderson and Bjorn Ulvaeus. All right, let's listen. Alright, so that's the bulk of the tricky counting part, but uh, let's just let this play for a minute because there's a pretty amazing transition coming up. If you've never heard this before, uh, buckle up for a good time. Bangkok, oriental setting in the city, don't know what the city is again. <laughs> creme de la creme of the chess world in a show with everything but Jules Brinner. Now that is a really cool way to start a song, and that is also a really cool thing to do in the middle of it, to just shift gears that dramatically. Really, really cool stuff. And the counting on this is definitely tricky. So we're gonna just take one phrase, one time through that rhythmic figure. That sounds like this. Okay, so that was one phrase. The thing to keep in mind with this intro is that it's mostly in six. Six is kind of where you're gonna find your anchor point. So it's this one, two, three, two, three, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, that kind of a thing. Mostly in six, and then occasionally there will be a bar of four. Da da da. 
The key is you just have to learn what the pattern is because there's kind of one subsection and then another subsection. So the bar of four is at the end of each subsection, but it's the two subsections are different lengths, which can throw you off if you haven't memorized the pattern. The pattern to memorize is ba 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 da ba 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 da ba two three four ba da da. That's the first subsection. The second subsection is ba 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 da ba 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 da ba. That's it. So it's kind of like 28 beats and then 18 beats for a total of 46 beats. But you don't have to think of that. You just kind of want to memorize the pattern, which will just take listening to it a few times. I had to listen to this a bunch of times to just kind of nail it down in my head. Then I figured out what the actual counting was, but it's more about getting your ear around it. The thing is, don't focus on the melody, just focus on those hits and the percussion because they're outlining the different patterns, like when it's going from six to four. So that's what you want to anchor yourself on. And generally speaking, when you're trying to figure out the counting on something, the farther down you go toward the bass and the drums, that's going to kind of be what you want to focus on, at least at first. The melody can be kind of more misleading. And this melody is really cool, but it is also kind of misleading if you focus on that. So let me just play it and I'm going to count it one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, kind of like that. So you can hear where the bars are four R and uh, it repeats that phrase three times. Then it goes to a kind of more conducted thing where the time gets pretty loose uh, and I'm not going to focus on that, but just to get the counting on this tricky beginning part, I'm going to count it for you. So here we go. And one two three 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 four one two three 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 four one two three 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 four one two three 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 four one that's it. So you can think of that a lot of different ways. You could think of it as eight groupings of three, then a bar of four, and then four groupings of three, and then a bar of four. You could, I kind of just hear that pattern. Bump, You just get it in your ear if you listen to it enough times. But that's pretty much what it is. Different combinations of three and four eighth notes, totaling 46 beats, but it's really more just about hearing that pulse. The more times you listen to it, the more that you'll hear it. And yeah, it's a cool section and kind of a fun, a fun rhythm challenge the creme de la creme of the chess world in a show with everything but you're in All right, so we've got a couple questions here about singing. John writes, why do some background singers' voices blend so well with each other and with the lead singer? On what basis are such background singers chosen? And David has another question that's on a different vector but is sort of related, so I'm going to ask David's question as well. David writes with a story. He says, I was doing laundry and singing along to Jackson Cannery by Ben Folds 5, as the cool kids do it. I try to be a good neighbor. The walls in my apartment building are pretty porous, so I am singing at a pretty quiet volume when this is happening. I come to the chorus to the harmony on Did Mother Nature Tell You, which let's just listen to that for context. So David writes, when it came to singing the harmony on that chorus, I noticed that I had to flip to my falsetto, or my head voice, in order to sing it properly. On the second go-round, I sang at a normal volume, and I was very easily able to sing the part using my chest voice. I was wondering if you could tell me why it's easier to sing the higher parts of one's vocal register at normal or higher volumes, and why one might need to flip to one's falsetto slash head voice when singing softly. 
So both John's and David's questions, they're both kind of about the same thing. John's question is, why do some background singers, like backup singers, how are they so good at blending and even blending with different lead singers? And David's question is, why do I have to sing so much louder when I want to sing in a kind of full voice up higher in my register? And when I want to sing quieter in that register, why do I have to flip to a falsetto or a sort of head voice lighter sound? So both of these questions are really about control and breath support, and those are two of the hardest things to master when it comes to singing. I'm definitely still working on both. Um, The longer that I work on singing, the more that I realize that breath support and managing your airflow, that's kind of the whole shebang. That's the whole enchilada when it comes to vocal technique. So if you've ever tried singing and you're not a trained singer, like you've gone to karaoke, you've been singing along with a bunch of friends at a bar or something, you've probably found that you get louder and louder as you get higher in your register until you're kind of like really pushing your voice and yelling out the really high notes. And those are the same notes that if you're just kind of casually singing quietly, you probably sing in a much lighter voice, which you could think of as your falsetto or your head voice. So just listening really quick to Jackson Cannery by Ben Folds. Great tune, by the way. Ben Folds 5 Rules. Definitely going to do an episode on that band and on Ben Folds' music at some point here, uh, not in the near future, but at some point. Anyway, so just listening to it, um, that harmony part starts up on a G, which is pretty high for the male voice. So that's a G, and G is pretty high for a guy. Did Mother Nature tell you? You're kind of up above the passaggio or the vocal break, which usually happens somewhere in the C to F sharp G zone. It's different for everybody. It's definitely above my passaggio. I was kind of singing in head voice there. I wouldn't call it falsetto because I don't really roll with that term anymore. It's kind of not a helpful term. Um, But it's just I was singing in a lighter voice because I wasn't singing super loud. And if you're able to sing that G pretty easily just using your chest voice, that's actually pretty good. That's a hard note to sing, so that means you've kind of got some good basic pipeline sound up. So the reason that I find the term head voice to be more helpful than falsetto is that the more I learn about singing and how to sing, and I should say here, I'm not a vocal instructor or anything. This is mostly based on my lessons and my understanding of the voice. The more I learn how to sing, the less I see a person as having two different voices, your sort of real voice, like the voice I'm talking in now, and your false voice, which is where falsetto comes from. The idea that there's this other false voice that you talk in when you remove your chest voice from the equation. I mean, Yes, like that does feel like a different voice, but it's actually all just a different sort of a spectrum and I can kind of go back and forth between the two of them. And and even when I'm down low like that, there's this whole gradient there and learning how to sing is learning how to explore that gradient. But your voice is always mixing those two main resonances and other resonances as well. And it's a lot more helpful for me anyways to just think of it as that spectrum rather than a binary. So yeah, if you're singing quietly and you're up singing, did mother nature fail you? You know, that's just kind of somewhere you're going to go. If you're singing quietly, you're going to sing in that more head voicey kind of a place. You could gradually add volume to it. And if I were super warmed up right now, I'd work out a way where I could really kind of belt it similar to how Ben Folds does. That's going to take, you know, some real focus. That's going to take some real technique. Ben Folds is a very good singer and he's recorded those backup vocals fully belting. He's he's pretty warmed up. He sounds good. And it is a nice full chest mix resonance. Did Mother Nature tell you, boy, you come and go as you please? 
For most of us, the way that our voice works, you know, if you're not super trained and you don't have a lot of vocal technique, you're just belting a karaoke or whatever. If you need to get your voice up to a G or somewhere like that, a G or an A up in your kind of higher belt register, which is just where you have to really support, usually the way that we'll do it is to increase our air flow and just be, you know, kind of putting more air across the vocal folds and that increases our volume. And so we're kind of really getting up there and like belting because our vocal folds are holding back all this pressurized air in the air really moving through and that lets you kind of isolate and hold that higher note. The thing is, that's actually really exhausting. It'll quickly make your voice tired. That's why if you've ever gone to karaoke and just sort of screamed out a bunch of songs, you'll find your voice is super shot. Maybe even the next day you have trouble talking. Um, you need to really rest your voice and it can lead to damage over time if you do that, you know, consistently over and over again, that can really kind of mess your voice up. So the trick with vocal technique is that you have to learn how to reduce your airflow without reducing the air pressure. You don't need to be putting a whole ton of air through your singing apparatus, and if you do that, you'll get really tired. Really good singers know how to support the air and keep it really supported, but they only use a tiny, tiny little, tiny bit of air. So like when Pavarotti hits the high B at the end of La Donna Immobile, he is like, that's really hard to do. It's a ton of support and pressure and it's a tiny bit of air. It's not actually all that much air. He's not blasting the air out. He's just laser focusing it in this beautiful way that has total control and this brilliant tone. This is something I'm really working hard on these days. It's fascinating, often very frustrating, and especially though when I'm warmed up and I really just have some good channels going and I'm feeling really good, there's this magical feeling where I'll be singing a nice strong note like a G or an A really up there, and I'm using just a tiny bit of air, but it's really, really supported and really controlled. There's no tension anywhere, and the note is just ringing out and it feels amazing. I can just tell when I'm doing it, this is correct. This is really good technique because nothing's hard. There's no, there's just no tension or no strain. And some people can do that more naturally than others. Some people can just totally do it. Um, it's definitely not natural for me. It's taken a lot of work. However it comes to you, it is the bedrock of good vocal technique, figuring out how to maintain consistent air support while cutting back the air. And that lets you sing all sorts of different textures and different volumes. And that, to circle back to John's question about backup singers, that's one of the main qualities people look for in a backup vocalist is good technique and control. Singing backup, it's a distinct challenge because you often need to blend your voice with the lead singer, and that means you have to be really flexible. You have to round your sound or maybe make it more harsh. Maybe you have to pronounce words differently. You need a ton of dynamic control to sing quieter or more loudly because depending on the lead voice that you're harmonizing with, you may need to come up or come down. So being able to do that, it's hard. It takes a lot of technique. You need to be a really good singer. That's why so many professional backup singers are so really good, just technically good, and a lot of them are actually better technical singers than the people that they're hired to support, even though they're not famous, they're not fronting a band. It's the same principle as studio musicians who are usually more technically skilled because they come in and they're able to do anything. That's kind of why you hire them. I've recommended this before on the show, but I do really love the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom, which is all about backup singers. Uh, it's a really lovely documentary about music and this sort of, it's about a lot of things, but it's really worth checking out because it's 
all about that discipline and those people, like the people who were professional backup singers who are wonderful, wonderful singers who've made so many records sound so great. So I hope that answer at least starts to get at why volume and register feel so connected, especially when you're first figuring stuff out. Um, David has a second part to his question that I'll answer really quick because I think it's interesting. He writes, um, does the same rule of airflow and volume apply to instruments that are propelled primarily by our lungs like brass and woodwinds? I never played an instrument like that, but I was curious if it is indeed harder to play higher notes at softer volumes than it is to play them at full volume. So this is an interesting one. On wind instruments, the same principles do apply, but some of the variables are different due to the way that the physics of a wind instrument work differently than the physics of the voice. So let's take saxophone. I'm really familiar with saxophone. I've taught a ton of people how to play saxophone a million years ago. I myself learned to play saxophone. So on saxophone, it's actually pretty easy to play the highest notes, and it's related to what I was talking about with moon hooch and their traffic cones. There's very little resistance when you're playing high on the sax because you have all the keys open and your air doesn't have to travel very far before it begins escaping the instrument. So there's not a ton of air resistance. You don't have to really support as much. It just kind of comes right out. It begins escaping as soon as it enters the horn. So beginning sax players actually have a harder time playing the really low notes quietly. That takes a lot of support and embouchure and control. So when you play those big like low notes, that's kind of harder to do when you're starting out or at least to do it consistently. The challenge with high notes on the saxophone is more about intonation. Beginning players will be super sharp on their high notes and it's where you get that kind of thin just out of tune high saxophone sound that you've probably heard if you've ever heard a student practicing alto or tenor sax because without proper support up high you really need to kind of control the air and otherwise you kind of pinch the reed close you push your pitch up and you go out of tune Trumpet and other brass instruments are another story. They're closer to the human voice in some ways. Beginning players have trouble playing the higher register at all. It's really hard to play high on the trumpet when you're starting out. And the real struggle winds up being having a controlled sound where you're creating enough pressure with your lips, with your embouchure, to control it and then supporting this air. So there's this laser stream of air coming out of you. You need to control that with your embouchure and put it straight through the horn to make a clean sound. And then doing that and also having a nice like mezzo piano sound up in the higher register of the trumpet, that's very hard to do. That's something that, you know, master trumpet players can do very easily, but beginning trumpet players struggle with. So as a wind instrumentalist who's learning how to sing, the similarities between saxophone, say, and singing can be really helpful, but they can also be challenging. I find it to be sort of disorienting because a wind instrument kind of takes all the parts of the human voice. There's the tone producing vocal folds or a reed on a saxophone, the resonant chambers of the throat and sinuses for a singer, kind of the horn itself, the bell of the instrument. So it recreates all of these same mechanical parts that are in your body, outside of your body, but you still use all those parts. Your vocal cords kind of play a role in your breath support, of course, and the resonant chamber in your mouth and your embouchure. You're still using all of those pieces, but then you're also putting them through this more complicated mechanism outside of yourself. So there's just a lot of the same physical principles at play, but there are more moving parts and things are sometimes in a different order. It can be a lot to get my head around, and I struggle with it sometimes. It can be frustrating, but it can also be really fun once I get a handle on it, and the whole thing is is certainly fascinating. But big brother got the keys and I got Jackson Cannery. Heidi writes, my question is about the song You and Me Flume Remix by Disclosure. In the chorus of the song, after the beat drops, the instruments seem like they're either played backwards or maybe through some kind of a filter or volume pedal or something. 
What is this effect? All right, well, let's listen. This is You and Me Flume Remix by Disclosure. And here comes the effect that Heidi's asking about. Okay, so this is a great example of something that I actually haven't talked about on the show before. This is sidechain compression, which is a very common trick that lots of modern music producers use to get that vacuum-like sound, like the whole band is stretching away from you with each downbeat. So what is sidechain compression? Well, first let's just explain compression. Compression is when you use a compressor. A compressor is an audio processing tool that adjusts the dynamics on a given waveform by setting a volume threshold, and then whenever the waveform surpasses that threshold, the compressor attenuates or reduces the signal by a given ratio, which can make for a more even signal overall with less contrast between the quietest and the loudest parts. A compressor can also increase the volume coming in, which is also known as the input gain, that raises up the quietest parts of the signal, so the compressor can both raise the quietest parts and also attenuate the loudest parts, which means the overall signal coming out of the compressor will just be more even, there will be less quiet quiets and less loud louds. I'm pretty sure that I've talked about compression before, so let's get right to sidechain compression. Usually compression isn't something that you notice. It's subtle, it's just used to even out things like vocals or wind instruments, kind of just so they sit evenly in a mix. My vocals that you're hearing right now are actually running through two different compressors compressors as well as a mastering limiter, but that's not super noticeable because most compression isn't done in a way that's intended for the listener to notice, but if you wanted to, you could use it in a more extreme way, which would be more noticeable. Like you pump up the ratio, make it really, really squish things, and then maybe you turn it on and off, which would squish and then unsquish the signal, and that'll actually create a cool spatial effect because the signal is kind of getting more squashed and quiet and then coming back up. So Heidi, when you said it kind of sounded like a volume pedal to you, that's not wrong. You're hearing this the, the sound kind of fall away from you because it's getting a little bit quieter because it's being compressed. So that is something you can do with a compressor. Sidechain compression means that you're putting a super intense compressor on one instrument and then you're using a different instrument to trigger that compressor. So one instrument will trigger the compressor, but when the compressor goes into effect, it's actually compressing a different instrument. And this doesn't have to be a super intense thing that's used for an effect the way that it is in a lot of electronic music. You can use it really subtly. A lot of people who are good mix engineers, which I don't consider myself to be, will use sidechain compression just like every time the kick drum hits, the bass gets a little bit compressed and that gets it out of the way of the kick drum. You can use it very subtly. It's being used not subtly at all here and that kind of more common use of it is is much more outsized. So to get that outsized sound, people will put, say, a really tough bus compressor just on all the synthesizers. So all the synths are under the umbrella of this really squishy compressor that's just going to smash the sound down. Then you sidechain that compressor to the kick drum. So every time the kick drum fires with that thump, you know, in electronic music, it's going to be a big, a big thump. Um, Every time that that hits... It squishes the synths, and the, the synths just get kind of smashed down just when the kick drum hits, so that at the same time as the kick drum fires and you get that big thump, the synths feel like they fall away, and the two things go together. So you're only hearing the compressor when the kick drum fires, which really emphasizes the impact of that kick drum. 
Okay, so I made an example here. This is just a thrown together little synth wave thing. I took some synthesizers and wrote a little pattern for them. And then I put a big strong compressor on those synthesizers. And then I've got a kick drum and a snare drum that are gonna come in. So here's what it sounds like with no compression. So there's no sidechain compression happening. This is what it sounds like. Pretty straightforward. So now I'm going to take that compressor that I put across all of the synths and I'm going to turn it on and this is side chained to the kick drum. So every time the kick drum fires, it's going to cause a bunch of compression to happen to the synthesizers, which will just subtly create that side chained fall away effect that Heidi was asking about. pretty cool, right? It just adds a little bit of extra something. The original sounded fine, but it doesn't quite have that vibey, spacey feeling that the one with sidechain compression has. It's the difference between this and this. There are tons of videos and tutorials about sidechain compression. It's a very hot thing that a lot of people want to do because it's so popular. So it's easy to find out more about it. And like I said, it's not a technique I use very often. I'm definitely no expert mixer and I'm not an expert in sidechain compression, but that's what it is. It's a pretty neat trick and definitely something that you will hear in a lot of modern records. Adam writes, I'd love to hear your take on Tame Impala's Elephant. The guy behind it hails from my hometown of Perth, Australia. Shout out to all the Strong Songs listeners in Perth. I know there are a bunch of you out there. Anyways, Adam wants to know, why does this song get stuck in my head so much? All right, well, this song is actually really cool. I've been really into Tame Impala lately, so let's listen to it. This is Elephant by Tame Impala. For starters, this just has a really great groove. But when I hear that, it makes me think something. It makes me think, what's gonna come next? Okay, so this tune is great, Tame Impala rules. It's actually just one guy, an Australian musician named Kevin Parker. He plays with the band live, but he records all of his studio albums himself. Um, part of what makes this tune cool is just that groove. Boom, do jack, do doom, do jack. It's just got that kind of shuffle desert rock groove that's going on. It actually kind of feels a little bit like Queens of the Stone Age to me. It's that same kind of energy. But what stuck out to me about this song is actually to do with the chords and the form. It's something that we were just talking about on the recent episode on Oliver Nelson's Stolen Moments. Tame Impala is tapping into one of the most fundamental and well-known song forms around, one that I've talked about on a bunch of episodes of Strong Songs. See, we're in the key of D, and we just start out here on the key of D, and it's kind of just grooving in D. And then... Well, it starts on a D and kind of grooves on a D for a little while, and then it goes to a G, which is the four chord. Hmm, what kind of song starts on the one and stays on the one for a while, and then when it changes chords, goes to the four chord, and then goes back to the one chord. Could it be? It goes one, then four, then one. Well, what happens next? (laughs) 
So yes, Tame Impala's Elephant is a blues, and I think that that's actually one of the reasons that the song hits you is because it's using one of the most common and well-known song forms in all of pop music. It goes one, sits on the one and D, hops up to the four chord, to the G, then it goes back to the one, and then it does this cool little ba da na 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 like walk down, that starts on the five chord on an A, and it's a little bit, you know, it's not just a five, four, one, like in the most straightforward blues, but it's still a five chord going back to one. This is still a blues. It's just a little bit of a tweaked blues with some funny counting, some funny hits, and uh, its own distinct little vibe, but it's a blues, and I think that that's a really cool thing about this song, in addition to pretty much everything else about this song, because it's a really cool song. So, Adam, I know you were writing a just kind of general question, but uh, it's a blues. Uh, Tame Paula's Elephant is a blues in D, with a couple of little clever tweaks and some nice tones, and a really killer groove. Now for a couple of questions about ensembles. Jim writes, when you're watching a jazz combo and they inevitably get to those long solos where the rest of the band stops playing, it seems like the musicians, particularly bass and drums, try to get way off the beat. The question is, do the other musicians actually count the bars or is there some kind of a cue that lets them know when to come back in? I totally lose track of the beat when watching and I can never quite catch or hear the cue. This is a funny question. Um, It kind of depends, I guess, is the answer. For the most part, jazz small groups do keep the form during solos. They'll sometimes do the thing you're talking about where they'll deliberately mess with the time. Like the drummer will start playing halftime three over four or something. You can usually tell if the drummer starts laughing or the bass player starts laughing while they're doing Doing this, it's a little bit of a joke. They're messing around. They're not specifically trying to throw the audience off. They're more just having fun with the groove and feeling it in different ways. Sometimes also small groups will introduce open sections or vamps where they'll pause the form for a solo and do something different. Like it's not uncommon for a drum solo to be what's called an open drum solo. And that means that the drummer isn't playing the form. They're just going to play a solo for a while. Like if you've watched a Buddy Rich big band arrangement, you know, the arrangement is really written and prescribed. And then at the end, Buddy will just start playing a solo and he'll just go and go and go and go and that's kind of just an open drum solo the time goes away and he's just doing his thing for a while and everyone knows to just watch him for the cue for when it's time to come back in some other bands will pride themselves on keeping the form even during the drum solo a lot of good drum solos especially from like the 50s 60s era of jazz they'll kind of reference the melody figures during their solos as a way of showing that they're keeping the form and especially at the end of their solo that's usually a kind of common way to to trigger the band or signal the band to come back in is you'll play the kind of melody figure that you would normally play behind the band then they know to come back in. That doesn't always mean that the band nails it every time. Sometimes I'll get lost when I'm on stage and a drummer is playing and you kind of just roll with it. Like you know that you maybe that that happens. You can trust your drummer to communicate when it's time for you to come back in, even if you've sort of lost it for a minute or they'll play a figure to reorient you. People also do make mistakes. A lot of playing jazz live just means learning to roll with it and adjust really quickly and uh, just sort of reset and get on the same page. One good example of a mistake like that is actually on the famous Charles Mingus record, Ah Um. Um, alto saxophonist John Handy messes up his entrance uh, during this song, Bird Calls. It's after the drum solo, the band is about to come in, and he just comes in early, just totally flying in the wrong place. Um, he comes in, he plays just a little bit of the melody figure, and then stops himself like, ah, crap, and you know, the tape was rolling, and there was nothing they can do. Uh, give a listen for it, you'll hear the alto just sneak in really quickly, then stop, and then the band comes in. <laughs> it's 
like the most relatable moment ever. It's happened to all of us. It certainly happened to me. And in the end, the important thing is that everyone's listening to one another and is able to quickly adjust, even if they get a little bit off or can't follow it when the drummer is playing something. It happens. And it's not always easy to follow, though it is kind of fun to at least try to follow along. Just bear in mind that it's kind of different every time. So if you're feeling like you're getting lost, that's totally okay. Claude writes, I play bass non-professionally. I use a website called Karaoke Version to purchase re-recordings of popular songs. What's great is I can remix the tracks to my needs. I can mix down the bass or I can mix up the drums. I can change the mix so that it's properly mixed and lets me practice with it. It's really fun. My question is, is there a downside to learning this way? I heard that playing to recordings can make you develop bad habits. One, two, one, two, three, four. So there are, I guess downside isn't quite the word that I would use to it, but playing only with play-alongs, like this kind of thing, this, this website you're describing, um, I learned jazz playing with jazz play-alongs. Jamie Abersold's whole series was a really useful thing for me, where he would get great rhythm sections to just play backing swing tracks on jazz standards, and they release CDs where you just buy a whole book of tunes, and you can learn the tune, and then you have a rhythm section to practice with, even if you're, you're at home. And then, you know, if you're like a high school student in Indiana, it's not that easy to get a combo together. However, I did eventually, pretty quickly, get a small group of friends together and we started playing together in real life too and we weren't as good as the play-along band so it was useful for me to have that kind of really solid thing to practice along with but it was very important to be learning the music with other people too so my thoughts are I guess it's great to practice with a play-along it can be super useful it's consistent the time is there you can figure out what you want to play it lets you always have this consistent thing to practice with but it isn't the same as playing with other people. And if your goal is to play with other people, you have to kind of practice doing that too, because it's its own whole skill. Like you have to learn the thing I was just talking about with jazz groups. You learn how to communicate with one another, non-verbally and musically and in all these different ways. And um, it's not just that it's fun to play with other people and that making music with other people is kind of, you know, the heart of music when you really get down to it. It's also that it's a skill on its own. So if you spend too long just practicing with play-alongs that don't react to you because they're not people, People, you can develop some habits where you just think, well, the song is always this way, and you're not ready for playing sympathetically and listening to the groove and listening to the piano player and sort of adjusting, um, you know, locking in with a real drummer. If you're a bass player, the ability to sympathetically lock in with a drummer is really important and is kind of, you know, it's a, a thing that you just develop between you and other drummers as you practice with more people. So if you come in having only ever played with a sort of pre-recorded, you know, single consistent drum groove, that can just make you feel a little bit rigid and you haven't got your head in the place where you're going to be adjusting in the way that you probably should be. So it's a great way to practice. If you do want to play with other people, I'd suggest trying to find some other people to play with as well, since it's a different skill set that you also want to be developing. But don't let that stop you from playing with the playlongs, especially not if you're having fun. I mean, if you're having a good time, that's the most important thing. Like really, if you if you only ever just play with the playlongs, it's still great. Like that can be a great way to make, make music and sort of build your own technique and learn about your own musical style even if you never play with another person. It's just, if you want to build up those skills with other people, you got to go play with other people. One, two, three, four.
Our final question came from a couple of people, and this is a little bit of sort of strong songs behind the scenes. I'll let Aaron uh, Aaron and David both wrote in with the version of this question. Here's Aaron's version. He writes, I'm always impressed with your ability to pick songs apart and separate instruments. Do you use any software to do this, or are you doing it all by ear? I toyed with bass guitar in my younger days, and I'm always listening for the bass line, but it can be hard to hear it over the mix sometimes. Sometimes I miss up bass notes with kick drum and vice versa. Any tips for how to more accurately listen? So for starters, I really don't use any software to isolate instruments or anything like that. When I'm learning a song, I just sit down at the piano and learn it, and I kind of make it a point to do that. This may be something I I don't know if it's if it's productive or counterproductive, but it's helpful for me, I think, to try to hear the song the way that everybody hears the song, just in the mix, and then to go off of that. I can hear a lot of things in a given mix, but I can't hear everything, and people do offer to send me stems with isolated tracks sometimes, and I don't really use those. I've used them a couple times, I think, on past episodes, but... Generally, I like it just being the like, what do I hear when I listen to this recording? Can I share that with listeners and help them see maybe what they could hear when they listen to a recording as well and just keeping it all at that level? So as for how do you listen better, that's a big topic, like how to listen to recordings. And it's something that I want to get more into. I might do a bonus episode at some point that's like teaching people how to listen, but that's almost a whole curriculum. It would take it would take a lot of work to figure out how to teach that. Um, but I would like to do it because I do think that there are some practical steps you can take and taking them will make it easier for you to hear more when you listen. So really quickly, first of all, you want to get a good set of headphones. Uh, open back headphones are what I recommend. You want open back because that opens up the stereo image and you can hear things a lot more clearly. You want them to be like reference monitoring headphones if you're going to try to be hearing everything because non-reference headphones like consumer headphones, they boost the bass a lot of times. They kind of mush together the bass and the low mids. You can get a really pleasant sound, but it can be a little bit just more squished and closed off. Like if you're listening on noise canceling headphones or earbuds or you know like anything that's like kind of closed backed over your ears it can just make it harder to pick out stuff especially down low so listening on the right speakers or headphones is important but if you want to build up active listening you got to treat it like a skill that you're practicing so it's not just something you're going to do passively or intellectually by thinking of it differently you kind of got to practice it um, every episode of strong songs is active listening it's like an hour of active listening i'm taking you through the song and we are active listening together but you can work on it on your own too. I find if you're going to really practice it, you want to sit at the piano, so treat it like you're in a practice space um, or at your instrument at the bass, but a piano is really good for this. If you're having trouble picking out one note, you know, you're kind of learning the bass line and figuring it out on a piano and you get stuck somewhere, the first thing you should try to do is surround it. So figure out what comes before it and then figure out what comes after it. And then you'll start to, you'll have a kind of narrow range of possibilities for what's happening in the space you're, you're not sure of. And then you can just use trial and error to figure out what's going on in the uncertain space. So that's just one quick tip for how to, how to work out just like a note that you're having trouble with. Maybe you're not quite sure what the bass player is playing. You want to start by getting good headphones and then just practice, like learn parts at the piano, figure out all the bass lines. And the more you do it, the better you'll get at it if you kind of work on it. It just takes that work and you have to treat it like a skill that you're practicing. I'm really happy to hear that some of you are working on active listening and you want to make it something that you're practicing and improving at even beyond what you get from listening to this show. That's great. Good luck. Just stick with it and do it a whole bunch. It's one of the most rewarding things that you can learn because it makes everything that you listen to that much more interesting, that much more engaging, and that much more rich. 
And that'll do it for this Q&A episode. Thanks to everybody who wrote in with a question. And as a reminder, you can always reach me at listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Thanks to all of you who support Strong Songs on Patreon. You're making all of this possible. You're amazing. No matter how long you've been a patron for, or maybe if you were a patron and no longer could be one, you have played a part in making Strong Songs happen. So thank you. Find out more about that at patreon.com slash strong songs. As always, you can find links to my social media newsletter and the strong, strong, strong song store down in the show notes. And if you've discovered or rediscovered a musical instrument because of this show, I hope that's going well, that you're being consistent and patient with yourself. This episode's outro soloist is the one and only Mr. Carlos Eni on the baritone sax. He recorded this earlier in the year, so stick around for Carlos on the berry, and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song. Mm-hmm.